This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is seeing things the way God intends for you. In the first half, Jeffrey R. Holland shares his address, Remember Lot's Wife, Faith is for the Future. Then in the second half, Gerald B. Johnson speaks on Eyes to See. The start of a new year is the traditional time to take stock of our lives and see where we're going measured against the backdrop of where we've been. I don't want to talk to you about New Year's resolutions because you only made five of them and you've already broken four. (laughs) I give that remaining one just another week. But I do want to talk to you about the past and the future, not so much in terms of New Year's commitments per se, but more with an eye toward any time of transition and change in your lives. And those moments come virtually every day of our lives. As a scriptural theme for this discussion, I've chosen the second shortest verse in all of Holy Scripture. I'm told that the shortest verse, a verse that every missionary memorizes and holds ready in case he is called on spontaneously in his own conference, is John 11 and 35, Jesus wept. Elders, here's a second option. It's Luke 17 and 32, where the Savior cautions, remember Lot's wife. Hmm. What did he mean by such an enigmatic little phrase as that? To find out, I suppose we need to do as he suggested. Let's recall who Lot's wife was. The original story, of course, comes to us out of the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, when the Lord, having had as much as he could stand of the worst that men and women could do, told Lot and his family to flee because those cities were about to be destroyed. Escape for thy life, the Lord said. Look not behind thee. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. With less than immediate obedience and more than a little negotiation, Lot and his family ultimately did leave town, but just in the nick of time. At daybreak, the morning following their escape, it says... The Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. Then our theme today comes in the next verse. Surely, surely, with the Lord's counsel, look not behind thee, ringing clearly in her ears, Lot's wife, The record says, looked back, and she was turned to a pillar of salt. In the time we have this morning, I'm not going to talk to you about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, nor of the comparison the Lord himself has made to those days and our own time. I'm not even going to talk to you about obedience and disobedience. I just want to talk to you for a few minutes about looking back and looking ahead. One of the purposes of history 
is to teach us the lessons of life. George Santayana, who should be more widely read than he is on a college campus, is best known for saying that those who disregard the lessons of history are destined, sadly, to repeat them. So if history is this important, and it surely is, what did Lot's wife do that was so wrong? As something of a student of history, I've thought about that and offer this as a partial answer. Apparently, what was wrong with Lot's wife is that she wasn't just looking back, but that in her heart she wanted to go back. It would appear that even before they were past the city limits, she was already missing what Sodom and Gomorrah had offered her. As Elder Maxwell once said, such people know they should have their primary residence in Zion, but they still hope to keep a summer cottage in Babylon. It's possible that Lot's wife looked back with resentment toward the Lord for what he was asking her to leave behind. We certainly know that Laman and Lemuel did when Lehi and his family were commanded to leave Jerusalem. So. It isn't just that she looked back. She looked back longingly. In short, her attachment to the past outweighed her confidence in the future. That, apparently, was at least part of her sin. So as a new year starts and we try to benefit from a proper view of what's gone before, I plead with you not to dwell on days now gone, nor to yearn vainly for yesterday, however good those yesterdays may have been. The past is to be learned from but not lived in. We look back to claim the embers from glowing experiences, but not the ashes. And when we've learned what we need to learn, and have brought with us the best that we've experienced, then we look ahead. We remember that faith is always pointed toward the future. Faith always has to do with blessings and truths and events that will yet be efficacious in our lives. So a more theological way to talk about Lot's wife is to say, she did not have faith. She doubted the Lord's ability to give her something better than she had. Apparently, fatally as it turned out, she thought that nothing that lay ahead could possibly be as good as those moments she was leaving behind. It is here at this moment in this little story that we wish Lot's wife had been a student at BYU, enrolled in a freshman English class because, with any luck, she might have read, as I did, this verse from Edwin Arlington Robinson. Miniver Cheevy, child of scorn, grew lean while he assailed the seasons. He wept that he was ever born, and he had reasons. 
Men of her loved the days of old when swords were bright and steeds were prancing. The vision of the warrior bold would set him dancing. Men of her sighed for what was not and dreamed and rested from his labors. He dreamed of Thebes and Camelot and Priam's neighbors. Miniver cursed the commonplace and eyed a khaki suit with loathing. He missed the medieval grace of iron clothing. Miniver Cheevy, born too late, scratched his head and kept on thinking. Miniver coughed and called it fate and kept on drinking. To yearn to go back to a world that cannot be lived in now, to be perennially dissatisfied with present circumstances and have only dismal views of the future, to miss the here and now and tomorrow because we're so trapped in the there and then and yesterday, these are some of the sins, if we may call them that, of both Lot's wife and old Mr. Cheevy. Now, as a passing comment, I don't know whether Lot's wife, like Miniver, was a drinker. But if she was, she certainly ended up with plenty of salt for her pretzels. <laughs> One of my favorite books of the New Testament is Paul's too seldom read letter to the Philippians. After reviewing the very privileged and rewarding life of his early years, his birthright, his education, his standing in the Jewish community, Paul says that all of that was nothing, dung, he calls it, compared to his conversion to Christianity. He says, and I paraphrase, I've stopped rhapsodizing about the good old days and now eagerly look toward the future that I may apprehend that for which Christ apprehended me. Then this verse, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. No Lot's wife here, no looking back at Sodom and Gomorrah here. Paul knows it's out there in the future, up ahead, wherever heaven is taking us, that we will win the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. At this point, let me sort of pause and add a lesson that applies both in your own life and also in the lives of others. There is something in us, at least in too many of us, that particularly fails to forgive and forget earlier mistakes in life, either mistakes we ourselves have made or the mistakes of others. That is not good. It is not Christian. It stands in terrible opposition to the grandeur and majesty of the atonement of Christ.
to be tied to earlier mistakes, our own or other people's, is the worst kind of wallowing in the past from which we are called to cease and desist. I was told once, many years ago, of a young man who for many years was more or less the brunt of every joke in his school. He had some disadvantages, and it was easy for peers to tease him. Later in his life, he moved away from his community. He eventually joined the Army, and that led to some successful experiences there in getting an education and generally stepping away from his past. Above all, as many in the military do, he discovered the beauty and majesty of the Church and became very active and very happy in it. Then, after several years, he came back to the town of his youth. Most of his generation had moved on, but not all. Apparently, when he returned, quite successful and quite reborn, the same old mindset that had existed before was still there waiting for his return. He was still just, to them, old so-and-so. You, you remember uh, the guy who had the problem, that idiosyncrasy and this quirky nature and did such and such and such and such and wasn't at all just hilarious. Well, you know what happened. Surely you know what happened. Little by little, this man's Pauline-like effort to leave that which was behind and grasp the prize which God lay before him, he was gradually taken away from that, diminished, until he died about the way he'd lived in his youth, kind of came full circle, inactive, unhappy, the brunt of a new generation of jokes. Yet, he had had that one bright, beautiful, midlife moment, an exception, when he'd been able to rise above his past and truly see who he was and what he could become. Too bad, too sad. He was again to be surrounded by a whole batch of Lot's wives, those who thought his past was more interesting than his future. Yes, they managed to rip out of his grasp that for which Christ had grasped him. And he died even more sadly than Miniver Chivi, though as far as I know the story, through absolutely no fault of his own. That happens in marriages, too, and in other relationships we have. I can't tell you the number of couples I've counseled who, when they're deeply hurt or even just deeply stressed, reach farther and farther and farther into the past to find yet a bigger brick to throw through the window pane of their marriage, spelled P-A-I-N. When something is over and done with, 
when it has been repented of as fully as it can be repented of, when life has moved on as it should, and a lot of other wonderfully good things have happened since then, it is not right to go back and open up some ancient wound which the Son of God himself died trying to heal. Let people repent. Let people grow. Believe that people can change and improve. Is that faith? Yes. Is that hope? Yes. Is it charity? Yes, above all, it is charity, the pure love of Christ. If something is buried in the past, leave it buried. Don't keep going back with your little sand pail and beet shovel to dig it up, wave it around, and then throw it at someone, saying, hey, do you remember this? Splat. <laughs> well, guess what? That is probably going to result in some ugly morsel being dug up out of your landfill with the reply, yeah, I remember it. Do you remember this? Splat! <laughs> and soon enough, everyone comes out of that exchange dirty and muddy and unhappy and hurt. When what God our Father in heaven pleads for is cleanliness and kindness and happiness and healing. Such dwelling on past lives, including past mistakes, is just not right. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's worse than Miniver Chivi and in some ways worse than Lot's wife. Because at least there he and she were only destroying themselves. In these cases of marriage and family and wards and apartments and neighborhoods, we can end up destroying so many, many others. Perhaps at this beginning of a new year, there is no greater requirement for us than to do as the Lord himself said he does. And I quote, Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. The provision, of course, is that repentance has to be sincere. But when it is, and when honest effort is being made to progress, we are guilty of the greater sin. If we keep remembering and recalling and rebashing someone with their earlier mistakes, and that someone might be ourselves, we can be so hard on ourselves, often much more so than with others. Now, like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's of the Book of Mormon, bury your weapons of war and leave them buried. Forgive. And do that which is harder than to forgive. Forget. 
And when it comes up to mind again, forget it again. You can remember just enough to avoid repeating the mistake, but then put the rest of all of it on the dung heap Paul spoke of to those Philippians. Dismiss the destructive and keep dismissing it until the beauty of the atonement of Christ has revealed to you your bright future and the bright future of your family and your friends and your neighbors. God doesn't care nearly as much about where you've been as he does about where you are and with his help where you are willing to go. That's the thing Lot's wife didn't get. Nor Laman and Lemuel and a host of others in the scriptures. This is an important matter to consider at the start of a new year. And every day ought to be the start of a new year and a new life. Such is the wonder of faith and repentance and the miracle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We started this hour with a little verse remembered from one of my BYU English classes. May I move toward a close with a few lines from another favorite poet whom I probably met in that same class or one similar to it. For the benefit of all BYU students, in the new year of 2009, Robert Browning wrote, Grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. The last of life for which the first was made, our times are in his hand, who saith, A whole, W-H-O-L-E, a whole I planned. Youth shows but half. Trust God. See all, nor be afraid. Sister Holland and I were married about the time both of us were reading poems like that in BYU classrooms. We were as starstruck and as fearful as most of you are at these ages and stages of life. We had absolutely no money, zero, for a variety of reasons. Neither of our families were able to help finance our education. We had a small apartment just south of campus, the smallest we could find, two bedrooms and a half bath. We were both working too many hours trying to stay afloat financially, but we had no other choice. I remember one fall day, I think it was in the first semester after our marriage in 1963, we were walking together up the hill past the Mazer building on the sidewalk that led up between the President's home and the Brimhall building. Somewhere on that path, we paused, stopped, 
and wondered what we had gotten ourselves into. Life that day seemed so overwhelming. And the undergraduate plus graduate years that we still anticipated before us seemed monumental, nearly insurmountable. Our love for each other and our commitment to the gospel were strong, but most of all the other temporal things around us seemed particularly ominous. On a spot, which I could probably still mark for you today, I turned to Pat and said something like this, Honey, should we give up? I can get a good job and carve out a good living for us. I can do some things. I'll be okay without a degree. Should we stop trying to tackle what right now seems so difficult to face? In my best reenactment of Lot's wife, I said, in effect, let's go back. Let's go home. The future holds nothing for us. Then my beloved little bride did what she has done for 45 years since then. She grabbed me by the lapels and said, We are not going back. We are not going home. The future holds everything for us. She stood there in the sunlight that day and gave me a real talk. I don't recall that she quoted Paul, but there was certainly plenty in her voice that said she was committed to setting aside all that was past in order to press toward and seize the prize of God that lay yet ahead. It was a living demonstration of faith. It was the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we laughed, kept walking, and finished up sharing a root beer, one glass, two straws, at the then newly constructed Wilkinson Center. Twenty years later, I would, on occasion, look out of the window of the President's home across the street from that Brimhall building and picture there on the sidewalk two newly wed BYU students, down on their money and down even more on their confidence. And as I would gaze out that window, usually at night, I would occasionally see not Pat and Jeff Holland, but you, and you, and you, and you, who are walking that same sidewalk. I would see you sometimes as couples, sometimes as a group of friends, sometimes just a lone student. But I knew 
something of what you were feeling and some of the thoughts that you were having. Thoughts like, is there any future for me? What does a new year or a new semester or a new major or a new romance hold for me? Will I be safe? Will life be sound? Can I trust in the Lord and in the future? Or would it be better, you might be asking, would it be better to go back, go home with Lot's wife? To all such of every generation I call out, you remember Lot's wife. Faith is for the future. Faith builds on the past, but never longs to stay there. Faith trusts that God has great things in store for each of us and that Christ truly is the high priest of good things to come. My young brothers and sisters, I pray you will have a wonderful semester, a wonderful new year, a wonderful life, all filled with faith and hope and charity. Keep your eyes on your dreams, however distant and far away. Live to see the miracles of repentance and forgiveness, of trust and divine love that will transform your life today, tomorrow, and forever. That is a New Year's resolution I ask you to keep, and I leave a blessing on you, every single one of you to be able to do so and be that happy. In the name of him who makes all of that possible, even the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is seeing things the way God intends for you. We've just heard from Jeffrey R. Holland. After the break, we'll return with Gerald B. Johnson for Eyes to See. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is seeing things the way God intends for you. Next is Gerald B. Johnson, Associate Professor in the BYU Department of Biology at the time of this address, titled Eyes to See. So you heard in the introduction that I'm a biologist, so it won't surprise you to learn that as a young child I had a fascination with catching animals. I went through several phases in this interest. I first fell in love with lizards and toads, and then I moved on to turtles and to small mammals and insects and finally fishes. I even had a scorpion phase. Now that one ended quite abruptly after I caught about a dozen scorpions and brought them into the house. 
I wanted to preserve them, so I doused them with rubbing alcohol until they no longer moved. I then proudly set each one out on the top of the television set to show my mother, who would be arriving home later that evening. Apparently, I then fell asleep, because the next thing I remember was hearing my mother screaming. I quickly realized that the rubbing alcohol treatment hadn't worked and that the scorpions were, in fact, not dead and they were loose in the house. That ended my scorpion phase. Today, as a professor of biology, my students and I continue to collect and study different organisms throughout the world as we seek to understand how the richness of our living world has come about. Now, one thing that I've learned in all of my years of collecting is that you need to know what you're looking for. In biology, we refer to this as developing a search image. Many species show remarkable adaptations that make it difficult for them to be found. It often takes a bit of work to detect these hidden organisms, but with a trained eye and experience, you get better and better at it. Today, I would like to focus my thoughts on the idea of developing eyes to see. Just as a biologist must learn how to see organisms in their natural habitat, each of us has been invited by our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ to develop spiritual eyes to see certain truths in our world so that we might help bring about God's great purpose, which is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of all of Heavenly Father's children, including you. But how exactly does this work? What does it mean to have eyes to see? And how will we know if we've seen what is intended for us? The Savior Himself offered some insight into these questions and warned us that this might not always be easy. Do you remember in the book of Matthew in the New Testament when Jesus started teaching in parables and His disciples came to Him and said—and now I'm paraphrasing—Hey, what are you doing teaching the people in parables? I get the sense from the scriptures that the disciples thought that this approach was perhaps too difficult for some of the people. Clearly, it wasn't as easy as the messages he delivered to them in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we know that the use of parables was a way to both reveal and conceal. But I want to focus on exactly how Jesus answered the question. Do you remember what he said? In Matthew we read, He answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but unto them it is not given. For whosoever receiveth, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever continueth not to receive, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not neither do they understand. My dear brothers and sisters, sometimes this is us. Sometimes we choose not to receive what God has made available to us. We live in a world where it is possible to have spiritual truths and access to revelation all around us, but for whatever reason, we sometimes fail to find it. The good news is that we can get better and better at developing a spiritual search image. The really good news is that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ love us so deeply 
that they have created a world where there is so much spiritual treasure to see and to find. With permission, let me share a story of a young man who spotted a spiritual truth intended for him. Wesley was one of my Boy Scouts a few years ago. He had encountered a hardship in his life that would be difficult for anyone to bear, let alone a young boy. His father had died unexpectedly, and he was understandably trying to make sense of it. That summer, Wesley came with us to scout camp. After a full week of fun together and adventure, we all sat around a campfire on our last night and shared feelings about our hopes and our fears and the things that we knew to be true. And I'll never forget what Wesley said that night. He looked into the sky and he said, You know, Heavenly Father didn't have to make the world so beautiful, but He did. And so I know that He loves us, and I know that He loves me. Wesley didn't just see bright stars and a calm lake and majestic trees. He didn't just see the outcome of the natural processes that have brought about this world. He saw evidence of a loving God and a merciful Savior. Wesley had discovered what Alma had taught and what Moses had taught and what other prophets have taught, that we live in a world with a purpose. In the book of Moses, Jesus Christ said it this way, And behold, all things have their likeness, and all things are created and made to bear record of me, both things which are temporal and things which are spiritual, things which are in the heavens above and things which are on the earth and things which are in the earth and things which are under the earth, both above and beneath, all things bear record of me. The last phrase in that scripture is important. It says, All things bear record of Jesus Christ. Do we live in a way that we see evidence of a loving God in all aspects of our lives, or do we only find it when we decide it is time for formal worship? I'm a biologist, and I'm amazed at how frequently I have been taught the lessons of the gospel through examples from the natural world. But we can have faith that regardless of what we study or what our vocation is or where we live or who we are, that we can find evidence that Jesus Christ is the Creator and is the Redeemer of the world and that God the Father lives and that He is literally our Father. One of the most remarkable things about Brigham Young University is that we invite all members of our community to find what is sacred and spiritual in the work that we do. I recently met with a group of new BYU faculty members. Our discussion centered on how to combine faith and intellect both in the classroom and in our research. I was deeply impressed as each new faculty member talked about ways that Heavenly Father had blessed them with stronger testimonies as a result of the scientific research they were doing. What they did for their daily work honed their understanding of our Heavenly Father. Of course, this invitation to see the hand of the Creator in our lives is extended to all people. How do we live in a way to develop eyes to see, then, to see things that are all around us that bear witness of Jesus Christ? May I offer two simple suggestions? First, we must desire it. We must desire to see the world and those around us with spiritual eyes. Elder Neil A. Maxwell said it this way, Quote, desire denotes a real longing or craving. Hence, righteous desires are much more than passive preferences or fleeting feelings. 
What we insistently desire over time is what we will eventually become and what we will receive. In that beautiful 29th chapter of Alma in the Book of Mormon, Alma said it this way, I know that God granteth unto men according to their desire. I know that He allotteth unto men according to their wills. What we righteously desire, we usually get. Unfortunately, the opposite is also true. What we unrighteously desire, we also usually get. My friend Mike recently taught me the importance of cultivating righteous desires. Mike is a good man. He served for a season as a bishop in a BYU ward and has had great success personally and professionally. He told me that he has been pondering an important question in his life and that this had gone on for some time now. He had prayerfully asked for insights that might help him find an answer. Recently, he felt impressed to ask Heavenly Father to teach him through his dreams. He confessed to me that he's never really been much of a dreamer, but still he acted on those promptings and asked in faith. In response, he actually had a dream that brought a remarkable peace to him. If we are to see spiritual truths in our lives, we must desire them, and as simple as it sounds, we must ask to see them. The second thing that we must do to have eyes to see is to prepare ourselves to receive personal revelation. Ultimate understanding requires revelation. For some, this will be manifest through occasional promptings from the Holy Spirit. For those who have entered into the covenant of baptism, we have a promise that we can have the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost to help us perceive and understand truth. In the Book of Mormon, the Prophet Moroni taught that, quote, By the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things. What the Holy Ghost can teach us exceeds what we can discover on our own. Now it is worth asking what will happen to us as we begin to see the world through spiritual eyes from the Savior's perspective. First of all, we will undoubtedly learn new truths. Little by little, we will better understand the great plan of our Heavenly Father and His will for us. This is how the Lord teaches us. As we come to recognize His truths, He will reveal more and more to us. In 2 Nephi we read, For behold, thus saith the Lord God, I will give unto the children of men line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear unto my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom. For unto him that receiveth I will give more. And from them that shall say, We have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. Hence it is essential that we are constantly receiving revelation. If we are not, we risk losing the understanding that we already have. There is also a remarkable secondary benefit that will come from this effort. Seeing things from the Savior's perspective will change our attitudes and our behavior. Let me offer a few examples of this. One thing that will likely happen is that we will begin to see each other and ourselves for who we really are. Each week I have the opportunity to see the young women in my ward stand and recite these words, We are daughters of our Heavenly Father who loves us and we love Him. We will stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places. When we see each other as daughters and sons of our Heavenly Father, it changes us. 
It takes us away from superficial thinking where we define ourselves as beautiful or athletic or intellectual or popular or not. Instead, we begin to see each other as brothers and sisters with singular purpose, striving to become ready to return to live with our Heavenly Father. Eyes that see this way so often replace harsh judgment with compassion and charity. They help us change our motives so that love is at the core of what we do. They help us see how to overcome the natural man who is an enemy to God. For the past year, I have tried to recall and to notice when people act in ways that show a godly perspective. I see it all the time now. I was impressed as I watched the end of a high school basketball game last winter. It was the last varsity game of the season. Five players who had not seen much playing time were sent to check into the game. All five wanted badly to get their chance to be in and score. A foul was called, stopping the clock. The referee motioned for four of the players to come in. The fifth would have to wait for the free-throw shooter to finish his shot. It was then that one young substitute player recognized that his teammate, who had played least of all that season, would be the one left waiting at the scorer's table. So he motioned for his teammate to go in in his place. This young man, who gave up his own chance to play, had eyes to see. Like young Mormon, he was quick to observe. He saw perhaps what he thought our Savior would have seen, that his sacrifice could lift another person. Oh, that we could always have eyes to see as the Savior does. I think many of our natural man tendencies would fade away. Charity would motivate our actions. We wouldn't define others by things like standardized test scores or by their dress or their planned profession or what sins they had or had not committed or any other imperfect indicator of the worth of a son or daughter of God. I had an experience where I was taught this just a couple of months ago. I took a group of students to Costa Rica as part of a tropical field biology class. I was excited to have these students with me. I have been conducting research on tropical fishes in Costa Rica for over 20 years now, and given the many times I have been there, I warned my students about how to be safe. I recalled to them a time years earlier where our rental car had been broken into and several valuables had been taken. I told them what a hassle it was and how angry and violated I felt by that incident. Now, I had a great group of students with me on this trip. We began each day with a small devotional and a prayer, often asking Heavenly Father to watch over us. On the fourth day of our trip, we arrived in a small city called Liberia. There we planned to have lunch. We parked our van in an attended lot adjacent to the town square, right across the street from a building that housed several police officers. We locked the van and asked the man attending the parking lot to keep an eye on our vehicle while we ate lunch. When we returned 30 minutes later, we found that the side window of the van had been broken and that four of our backpacks had been stolen. I couldn't believe it. With all of the precautions that we had taken, our vehicle had been broken into again. As you can imagine, my first feeling might have again been one of anger. I knew what this meant. It would be hours in a police station, the need to replace the van, not to mention the items that were stolen. Yet a remarkable thing happened to me. I had an overwhelming feeling of love come into my heart for the people who had perpetrated this crime. I couldn't believe what I was feeling. These impressions came to me quite strongly for several seconds. 
they completely changed my perspective. Rather than protecting our van, Heavenly Father was teaching me something. I wondered what circumstances had brought these people to a point where they were acting in such desperate ways. I knew in that moment that God loves all of His children. Those feelings were a gift to me to know how our Savior feels about us, even when we sin, perhaps especially when we sin. I was so proud of the students who were with me, who rather than becoming angry also felt compassion. They truly accepted the Savior's invitation to, quote, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Having eyes to see helps us maintain a godly perspective in an earthly existence. It is so easy, so human, to not love those who harm us or who are different from us. These differences might be physical, they might be social, they could be economic or political or based on degree of education. At our worst, we might be tempted to ignore or to marginalize or to outright reject these individuals. Yet the Savior seemed particularly tender towards those who were outcast. Think of lepers, of lost sheep, of publicans and sinners. The Savior reached out to all of them. With eyes to see, you will understand that individuals who are different from you are loved by our Heavenly Father every bit as much as He loves you. I recall serving as the ward mission leader in a large city in the Pacific Northwest. One evening I had the opportunity to take one of the full-time missionaries with me as we looked up addresses of members of the Church whose names were on our rolls but whom we had never seen at Church. One evening we knocked at a door and a man answered. His appearance shocked us. He was not dressed in a way that one would expect. We asked him if he knew where we might find a certain brother who was a member of our Church, to which he replied that he was that man. At first, we weren't sure if we could believe him. His appearance and lifestyle seemed so distant from our expectations. He told us that he had served a full-time mission, but that he had drifted far from activity in the Church and that he had essentially abandoned the Church and forsaken the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without much expectation, we invited him to return. We told him what time we met and where we met on Sunday, and to be honest, I thought that would be the end of it. Then Sunday came, and to my great astonishment, this man entered the chapel just after sacrament meeting started. As I looked from the stand toward him, I could see that his appearance was just as it was when we had met him at his home. I could tell that he felt a bit uncomfortable as he found a seat at the back of the chapel. After the service was over, I quickly raced to his side, trying to insulate him from what I worried might be awkward comments from others about how he looked. We talked for several minutes, and then he told me that he wanted to attend priesthood meeting. So I brought him in. There he was in a room full of men wearing suits and white shirts and ties. I feared that he would not be received well. His appearance and apparent lifestyle could have so easily drawn out a sense of exclusion from the men that sat in that room. I stood and introduced him, and the response from the priesthood men in that room will forever be burned in my heart. Almost in unison, they said, Welcome back, brother. Welcome back. This response prompted a feeling of love that eventually led to an earnest prayer by this good man, a prayer that Heavenly Father answered so forcefully 
that it led to a mighty change of heart in this man, a change that I could scarcely have imagined. Now, this is a beautiful story that I treasure with a wonderful ending, and I wish I had time to share it. But what has always stood out in my mind is how these priesthood brothers saw who this man really was, not who he appeared to be. They understood what the Lord meant when he said to Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. They understood the great love that God feels for his children. President Uchtdorf said it so kindly in the October 2009 General Conference when he said, quote, Think of the purest, most all-consuming love you can imagine. Now multiply that love by an infinite amount. That is the measure of God's love for you. God does not look on the outward appearance. I believe that He doesn't care one bit if we live in a castle or a cottage, if we are handsome or homely, if we are famous or forgotten. Though we are incomplete, God loves us completely. Though we are imperfect, He loves us perfectly. Though we may feel lost and without compass, God's love encompasses us completely. He loves us because He is filled with an infinite measure of holy, pure, and indescribable love. We are important to God, not because of our resume, but because we are His children. He loves every one of us, even those who are flawed, rejected, awkward, sorrowful, or broken. God's love is so great that He loves even the proud, the selfish, the arrogant, and the wicked. This good brother might have felt that there was no longer a place for him in the Church, but of course there was. And there is a place for each of us in the Church of Jesus Christ. To those of you who wonder whether or not you belong, who are struggling to find your place, please know that you belong. We need you, and the Lord needs you. I am so grateful for living prophets. We live in turbulent times when many call evil good and good evil. In His great mercy, our Heavenly Father has called and bestowed keys upon prophets today. What a gift this is. They serve as oracles to help guide us in ways that will keep us safe from evil. It is true that they are people. I will never forget when I was a graduate student in New England when President Gordon B. Hinckley came to speak at an area conference. We sat near the front of a great auditorium rented to accommodate the large gathering of saints. Before the meeting, my oldest son Eric, who was just three at the time, broke loose and ran toward the stage where President Hinckley was seated. As young parents, I think my wife and I were a bit embarrassed at what was going to happen next, fearing that Eric would end up on the stand singing and dancing. President Hinckley saw him coming and in the kindest way smiled at him and waved that affectionate wave just as any grandfather would do. Eric stopped to wave back, giving us just enough time to corner that kid and get him back in his seat. <laughs> yes, the prophets are real people, but they are much more than that. They are direct conduits to our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. They act by authority to administer the Church as directed by Jesus Christ, whose Church it is. Each of us has the privilege to gain a testimony that Jesus Christ has called prophets today. I am grateful for this direct link to heaven and that man is not left untethered, but rather that the keys of the kingdom have been restored to the earth and that they reside with living prophets. When we have eyes to see, 
the divine calling that prophets hold, and when we act upon their words, we put ourselves in a place of spiritual safety. Finally, and most importantly, we might ask ourselves, how do we see Jesus Christ? Now, interestingly, Jesus asked his own disciples this very question. He said, quote, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. Elder Robert D. Hales put it this way, Think of it, at some point in our eternal progression, each one of us is going to have to answer the question, Who is Jesus Christ? We are told that every eye shall see, every ear shall hear, and every knee shall bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When all men shall stand to be judged of him, then shall they confess that he is God. I testify that Jesus Christ is a God. But he is more than a great man who lived on earth 2,000 years ago. He is the Son of our Heavenly Father. He is our Savior and the Redeemer of the world. He is also a Creator. The world that we live in is here for a purpose. With eyes to see, we can find evidence in our world that God loves us and that He knows us. I also testify that if we desire it and if we ask Him, He will reveal truth unto us. This truth will help guide us in our own eternal progression. He will allow us to see others for who they really are. What a blessing it is to see each other as brothers and sisters, each of infinite worth in the eyes of God. How can we be anything but charitable and kind and merciful when we see each other this way? Our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ see you this way. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Seeing Things the Way God Intends for You, with thoughts from Jeffrey R. Holland and Gerald B. Johnson. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.